0: Welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty, alongside your host, Michael John Cusick, for another great episode. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Brian, it's so
1: good to be with you again. I'm doing well in sunny Colorado.
0: Well, we are finally recovering from the ice storm here in Cincinnati and a sad Bengals loss, but there's hope for next year.
1: My condolences to you.
0: (laughs) Thank you, sir. (laughs) Hey, let's uh, go ahead and get on with it. On uh, today's podcast, we're going to feature a conversation between you and Brenda Salter McNeil and Rick Richardson, who have authored the book, The Heart of Racial Justice. Now, I've heard in previous conversations that you and I have had that this was one of your favorite interviews of all time. Why was that?
1: Well, this is a book that came out a while back. I think the the most recent edition was 2009, and the subtitle to this book, The Heart of Racial Justice, is How Soul Change Leads to Social Change. And the good people at InterVarsity Publishing, who will send me from time to time, different promotional materials, they sent a catalog and this was in it. And I was familiar with both of the authors, but I noticed the subtitle. And at Restoring the Soul, we are all about uh, restore a soul and and heal a heart and repair the world. And so um, I started to read the book and I thought, wow, they are saying about race what I'm saying about healing a heart. And so their emphasis both with pastoral backgrounds, but Rick Richardson, who is an academic and a professor of theology and culture at Wheaton, and then Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, a pastor and a social activist and community organizer, also a really deep thinker. Because of their pastoral background, they're really looking at the racial issue through the lens of each person plays a role by changing from the inside out and uh, the the approach that they laid out is so simple and yet so difficult. So I'm really excited for people to hear our conversation, and it was a conversation that just went all over the map, Uh, and I'm not patting myself on the back, but afterwards, uh, Reverend McNeil said, you are a really good interviewer, and that's because we laughed and my own heart was touched and it just felt like three people sitting in the living room. So I received that as a compliment, but it just felt like a, a real conversation.
0: Mm. It, it really was. And I really have a great privilege of, of being, you know, involved, intimately involved with the process of get, you know, pulling these interviews together for the podcast. And I listen, and I try to listen well, and I try to learn. And there's a quote that I want I to want to I kind of tease early, one that really affected me personally, in which Brenda said, that the greatest act of worship is to become who God says you are. And I just, I, like, I frankly, I pressed pause, because I couldn't continue in the editing process in, in pulling it together, because it struck me as such a profound statement. So I think our listeners are really in for a, a treat today and uh, grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to present this, uh, this podcast. So before we get into the interview, I'd like to let everybody know that today's podcast is being brought to you in part by the great folks at riverside.fm. They're the leading podcast and video recording platform. Now, Michael, as a host, what's been your experience? With Riverside.
1: We've been using Riverside for close to a year during the pandemic and it has really made all of the difference and I would never be involved with a sponsor on our podcast that uh, I wasn't actually using the product or that I didn't really believe in and when you introduced me to Riverside uh, it took it took the quality of the program up and the simplicity uh, far far more simple to use so I'm really excited to have them as a sponsor.
0: And that's just one of the many reasons why so many podcasters use Riverside.fm. Be sure to check them out and all the other amazing features they have at Riverside.fm and create an account today. Get started by using the code Michael10 for $10 off a subscription. Just click the Riverside.fm link in the description of today's podcast. Hey, it's about time for us to get to the conversation with Brenda Salter McNeil and Rick Richardson. We pick up with Brenda responding to a question related to our design as humans built for community and relationship. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Uh Cusick
2: people will then just kind of assume this is all about Jesus coming into my heart. This is all about me giving my life to Jesus. Why are you talking to me about race? I'm not racist. So it's this very individualistic view, but when we think Trinitarian, when we think that we do not exist outside of relationships, we are made in the image of the divine triune God and this divine dance that we have been invited into, this communal way of being is not just about what I like. It's not just about the people who look like me. It is the being together in a way that as we're together, we absolutely do a better job of reflecting the Imago Day to a world that needs to see diversity and unity coexist.
1: There's something so compelling about that. that. That's a God I think that people would be attracted to, a God whose arms are open to other. And the humbling part, as you mentioned, Dr. Rick, is that it's it's humbling for all of humanity. Um, so I am included in other when we're thinking about who God is, right? That the very idea of holiness is otherness, one of a kindness, and I am not that one of a kind. And so you, you actually open up the how to, how to create racial healing, how to facilitate it with this whole concept of worship. And I'll be honest with you. I originally saw that and I was like, "Okay, I know where this is going." I'm gonna play a couple Chris Tomlin songs and maybe bring in some black gospel music, and we're gonna we're gonna have a great worship session. And that is the expectation. Now I, I know enough about both of you that that's not the case because as I read, I was like, "Oh, this this is the point. We all share the same Father, but also we lose." Uh, we we lose a sense of otherness in the appropriate way of losing that when we're drawn together in this common cause. So talk about why you started with worship as the, the launching pad for healing this.
2: I'll let Rick say most of it, but I want to say, uh, first of all, I'm enjoying our conversation so very much. Thank you for how you're guiding this. I'm really, really enjoying it. And part of why I wanted to be on your podcast with you is because you understand that this has something to do with the soul. And so what Rick and I were trying to do is not just develop a practice of reconciliation or a a theology of reconciliation. Those books are out there. We were trying to get to the soul. We were trying to get to what is the spirituality of reconciliation? What is a spirituality? And what is unique about what the church, the people of God who follow Jesus, what's unique about what we have to offer? Where do we get clear about the call of God on our lives? Where are we transformed? And that's where worship became a part. So I'll I'll go over to my brother because there's a great story in there about worship and how it can indeed break down, down walls. But what we were trying to get to is to suggest This is not just a human thing we're trying to engage. There's something spiritual happening here. And we have got to find a way to address the spiritual realities, both those that are evil, that must be named and renounced, and those that bring us into the presence of God. Worship being one of those. So Rick, take it away.
3: Yeah uh, what what uh, Dr. Brenda is re- is referring to is is uh I I was chairman of Chicago Land Concerts of Prayer for a while and we did a major prayer event at Moody uh, Memorial Church historic evangelical church in downtown Chicago and uh, and we did this prayer service as a, a way to move toward reconciliation and a way to bring justice reconciliation and evangelism together in our prayers, in our longing, in our hearts. And we knew we were on God's mission. In doing that, and so we had we had African American, Asian uh, Asian American, Latino Latina American, Native American, White American. We had internationals. Our prayer meeting started in Hausa and uh, Korean, and uh, you know I think we did have uh, a little English thrown in there, and and we went through. We had a gospel choir. We had a lot of worship, but we'd agreed to focus on our similarities, not our differences. And so we'd said, hey, don't get into your specific worship practices, i.e. speaking in tongues, for instance, that might divide us. After all, this is Moody Memorial Church. We don't want that to happen. We don't want this to become an event of division. And uh, so sure enough, everybody followed the letter of the law. But at one point, dear, I love him, but a Latino uh, Pentecostal brother he didn't speak in tongues, but I could swear he started worshiping and singing in tongues. And, you know, he could say, Hey, I, I, I kept, I, I kept my agreement, but, and, and, you know, but he just, uh, took us all up. But I, I had been watching the elders of Moody Church in the back and I was saying, Oh, man. I mean, here we are in unity, standing for the whole gospel to the whole world in prayer, pra- practicing what Brenda calls that spirituality of reconciliation and justice. And we're practicing it, and I thought we we're going to fall apart. Afterward, the senior pastor came up to me, and I'm ready to apologize. He said, thanks so much. That was so powerful. I love the way we worshiped God and invited God's presence, because when we're facing evil, the way you overcome it is not to yell at evil. It's to invite God's presence. God's presence kicks out evil. All these prayers where we call out this demon and that demon and cast this demon out and that demon out, the key is Christ's presence and authority cast them out and move them out. And so that's what we were practicing. So he's shaking my hand. He's saying, that was fantastic. My favorite part was where our Latino brother just broke out and led us in Spanish to worship the Lord. And I'm like, now, wait a minute. I I don't know. I know a little Spanish. It didn't sound like Spanish to me, but I'm sure that God either translated Spanish to tongues for me or tongues to Spanish for him and protected that sign of his presence and his kingdom and his gospel, because that's how much God cared about
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. His, his intimate knowing and his, his absurd sense of humor, uh, to, to, to create that scenario. And I, and I just pictured D.L. Moody fist pumping in heaven going, they, they don't see it yet. They don't see it yet. Um, you know, and a, and a shout out to your book, Rick, uh, 20, 25 years ago uh, about healing prayer. Wasn't it called Experiencing Healing Prayer? That's it. Uh, InterVarsity book. And that book was significant for me as I was learning how to integrate being a mental health clinician and uh, really, the the gist of that book was invoking the presence of Jesus, who is not somewhere else and we have to bring him in, but invoking and making real that reality that he's there. And truly, uh, where Jesus is, the darkness doesn't have any authority. And so that's just, that's just beautiful. And there's something about how each of us individually, when we're living in wholeness, we bring the kingdom as we come forth. So that a, a believer who's engaged in worship and not just standing with your arms raised, or as Presbyterians might do, with their hands in their pockets, but to uh, to bring forth the kingdom of God within ourselves, and therefore wherever we go, we're bringing that kind of healing.
3: I also, yeah, I, I, I just have to I just have to add, you know, it, it the the power of God that we get focused on a lot comes from the presence of Christ. The power of Christ flows out of the presence of Christ. And that's why I've always loved Dr. Brenda's emphasis. When we deal with these hard issues, we worship first, because this place has to be filled with the presence of God before we take on this stuff.
1: I just want to pause there for a minute, because uh, I I think if, if listeners don't take away anything else, say the phrase again about, The presence of God.
3: Yeah, the power of God flows out of the presence of Christ. It's when the presence of Christ, another lives in us, fills us, fills our space, fills the body of Christ, then there's power, because Christ is present. When we get focused on power, it feeds ego, it can feed pride, spiritual pride, but when we focus on the presence of of Christ. That's all the power we'll ever need.
1: So what initially seems like an impossible task, to to quote Dr. King, just a dream. He had a dream, but uh, people that don't live uh, without privilege, people that are not oppressed, people that are not discriminated against, we can think, well, that is just a dream, or the dream has already been fulfilled. But instead of it being something impossible and beyond us, it's really pretty simple. And that is acknowledging that it's beyond us, but living in this powerful reality of the incarnated Christ and of the the, the spirit of God and joining together as believers. Now, that's easier said than done, but it really is that simple.
2: Yeah, or at least here's what I'd say. We can use the prophet Isaiah as an example. So we come into God's presence, all of us broken. Right, or the woman at the well, you know, and Jesus says, Hey, God is seeking for those who worship in spirit and in truth, and that's what happens to Isaiah. He is in the presence of God, high and lifted up, and he comes to the truth of himself and the people with whom he lives, and he confesses it. He doesn't give a good excuse for it, he doesn't say, Well, doesn't everybody do it? and don't you know, he just calls a thing a thing, hey, God. I've seen you exalted and when you are present and when you are our focus, this is what I know for sure. I know for sure that when that happens, Richard Foster says to worship is to be changed. And so real worship is not singing Christian karaoke. Real worship is so elevating God that the light of God fills wherever we are and we see ourselves We see ourselves in the light of God, and none of us stand straight in front of God without having to do some self-examination. And then we say the truth. We tell God the truth. God, I'm undone. Even though I'm a priest or a pastor or a, a, a parishioner, I am undone. And I dwell among a people who are just like me. But I saw you. I've seen you high and lifted up. And I can no longer justify this. And God will immediately come and begin to purge us of those things that we have made idols of in our own lives and around us. Nationalism or whatever else has taken the place of God, gets dethroned, and we are able now to walk out of that place with a new commitment to the kingdom of God, where our real citizenship lies. That's what we're trying to write. That's the kind of book we want people to have in their hands.
1: That's a really radical idea. We wouldn't think that in 2022, we would need to say that we're not talking much about the kingdom of God, but it seems like we talk more about cultural Christianity than we talk about the kingdom, which is, uh, I, I love how one of my friends defined it in a book about the kingdom. He said that the kingdom of God is heaven happening here. And I know there's a lot of, a lot of definitions, you know, the, the, anywhere that God's reign and rule or presence comes. But heaven is meant to happen here, not just for us to die and go to heaven. Revelation 21 talks about heaven coming down to earth. Um, back to Dr. King, and no no conversation on this is complete without at least a reference to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but he's best known for I Have a Dream. And as I was reading your book, I thought, we can't do this without imagination, imagination to see that which is not yet and to see that which God invites us to picture in the eyes of our heart, Ephesians 1.18. Talk about how each of you has, has, has had to engage with imagination to see something that is not yet, but that's actually a, a great passion inside of you.
2: I'll go first and then pass it off to Rick just to say that we do it in community. That's why we need diversity. I'm kind of tired, to be honest, of people who want diversity for diversity's sake so they can look more inclusive or woke or whatever. We do diversity because we can't imagine a world that is outside of what we've come to see or know without other people who open our eyes to things that are just not our worldview. I think God intentionally made us to fit like a puzzle and that each piece of that puzzle is uniquely necessary to us being able to imagine and seeing a bigger picture than the one we've grown up in. So there's no shade on people who've grown up in monocultural com- communities. Many of us have. But the problem, because when we stay there, and we don't interact and become really close with people who are different than we are, who've had different life experiences than we are, then our imagination is limited. I'll say that and then let Rick take it from there. But I believe that we were intended to be a community of faith, not individuals who pick and choose what they like and what they
3: don't. Amen. Um, word, ima- When you talk about the imagination, uh, I think that's really a powerful word, what we dream of, what we aim for. And we live in a cynical world where a lot of us have given up our dreams. A lot of us have uh, said, oh, that's, that's not the real world. But that is the dream of the kingdom. It's heaven here. And we pray that. Jesus taught us to pray for that every day. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's his prayer against cynicism. And against skepticism and against defeatism and against despair. We pray that every day because he taught us to have hope and he taught us to have imagination. And for me, I just, uh, some of the things that just completely capture my imagination. I love it when people who are, you know, they were, we were created by God to become ethnic and racial people all over the world. That's something God intended, that diversity to represent his image. And I love when we're healed both within ourselves, our own ethnic, Ethnic identity, you know, I I, I get so broken hearted right now. I'm working with uh, I'm working with uh, uh, about. 60 African-American churches. And we're helping churches become more evangelistic. And our leader is a very prominent African-American pastor, uh, uh, Reverend uh, John Jenkins, Reverend Michael Henderson is the other Reverend James Meeks. And they're providing leadership. And I get to contribute to seeing the healing of uh, black churches reaching their communities and helping their people be healed of the absolutely horrifying impact of racism on people. And to me, it's an imagination. I have this, my heart is healed when I think of, we get healed within ourselves. My white identity has had to be healed. And I get so, that when I'm healed, when these churches are reaching people and the gospel is healing African-American people, then we come to the table healthy and we can reconcile. And I can submit to African-American leadership. They can submit to Asian-American, you know, and we can submit to one another. We can build one another up. And that path of humility and of servanthood and of healing, it, it just captures my imagination.
1: I, I, I think that it's impossible to have faith without imagination, uh, which is, is really this, this sense of being able to see the other that we, we can't quite see. Let's come back to the subtitle of your book, Soul Change Leads to Social Change. And most of the listeners of this podcast have heard me talk about my disillusionment without talking about politics in one sense, with how such a majority of Christians, self-proclaimed Christians, who would say that they understand the gospel and that their stance is for God and on God's behalf, they're the ones who push back against these ideas, saying that different um, uh, ideologies are are what are evil, and people trying to take away their freedom is what is evil. But you are head on, no holds barred, no apologies, calling this injustice and racism that it's evil. And Solzhenitsyn was the one who said that, you know, the dividing line between good and evil goes right down the middle of the heart. So evil is not other. Evil is me when I embrace these ideas, when I find myself uh, laughing or even making uh, racial comments and, and judgments inside of myself. One of my favorite quotes, and I think the author was uh, Khaled Hosseini, the author of The Kite Runner, who said that no individual raindrop – considers itself responsible for the flood. And so I am responsible for the flood. And I have to change me. And I'm thinking that in light of all of this, this is why you had a chapter and then weave all throughout the rest of the book on that we have to embrace our true identity, who we actually are, instead of a false identity. And to me, this opened up the whole category of brokenness. That that underneath this not seeing God for who he really is. It's our personal brokenness that creates these internal ideologies, as well as systemic structures and powers and principalities. But there's an invitation to become whole. And that uh, as we encounter this holistic gospel and a God who is holy, that we can become whole. So I just want you to unpack even more of this idea about how this transformation in our world requires individuals to be transformed?
2: Well, part of it, I think, is that the world around us is not neutral. We live in a particular type of society. We live in a racialized society, and we are all getting messages about ourselves all the time, which leads to implicit bias about who we think are smart, who we think are pretty, who we think are deserving, who we think are welcomed, who we think should not be welcomed. All those things are influenced, you know, by the by the water we all swim in. And in order to reverse that, we've got to really take serious inventory of what does this world communicate? And it happens from the time we're kids. I'll tell you when I was in kindergarten, I remember going to school, um and you know I'm an African American woman. I was a little girl, had first time going to School with other kids, and we're in the cloakroom, and two little white girls are saying to each other, I'm half German. And the other girl said, Well, I'm half French, and the other one said, Well, I'm half. And I just stood there like, half. You know, so I came home and I said to my mom, I'm five years old, mom. The, the little girl said they were half. What am I? And and I'm at five years old starting to get messages about, oh, they know more about their history. They they can say that they're they're half French and half German, and my mom said, "Well, honey, you're black," <laughs> you know, and and that was it. But kids are putting things together at a very young age. And so if you only see a certain type of person who's beautiful, then that tells you a message about who's beautiful. If you see certain kind of people who get harmed uh, and then arrested and or, you know, I'm really going to say it out loud, people who get shot in the street are generally black people. That gives a narrative. I'm a mother of two, one daughter, one son. I am terrified when I heart heard about Ahmaud Aubrey running for going for a jog. My son is a runner, he was on the track team. Rick knows him. He's, um, Rick is Uncle Rick. To have my son fearful to go for a jog is unique to my experience. And so knowing my story, knowing my experience, but all of us knowing that we've been shaped in a particular kind of social climate that has got to be interrogated, we've got to ask ourselves, what messages have we received about whiteness? Because just like those two little precious girls in kindergarten, before they were white, they could say, I'm half French and I'm half German. But now most people will say, I have no idea. I'm just Heinz 57. Where did your ethnicity go so that you could be white? Now, that's a conversation that should be had because it's led to a lot of the divisiveness, the polarization, the sense of entitlement, the fear. And if we're ever going to heal, and that's what Rick and I want. People who think that we're just angry folks, we're not. We believe that God will heal our land. But in order to heal our land, We're going to have to go to the great physician and honestly receive the diagnosis that would lead to our healing. So for me, it begins with honestly assessing what are the messages that I've received about myself and my people group. And then like Isaiah, how do I take that before the presence of God and say, Lord, these things about my people are great. These things right here, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell with people just like me. Would you heal and purge us of this? Rick, what do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts.
3: Yeah, so I, I think um, just to, Michael, speak a bit about that healing prayer book I wrote and, and sort of the ministry you have all really all over the country, all over the world, is I think we understand brokenness in individual and relational ways, right? We understand if we were abused growing up, that caused a wound in our soul. We understand if our dad left, and we were abandoned, that caused a hole in our soul. And that's going to influence everything we think about ourselves. So we've, we've got it that we need healing from brokenness, and brokenness in specific ways. What are the traumas we've experienced? What are the sins that, you know, how were we sinned against? I'm sure you've used this. How were we sinned against, and how have we sinned in response? And healing addresses both of those dimensions, how we were sinned against, and and then also how we sinned in response. And all of us has a journey that we go through, the healing of Jesus, his presence, uh, facing the deficits, giving them to God, having God come into the holes in our soul. We get it when it comes to those personal, relational experiences. What was new about what, what Brenda and I did is we applied that understanding of brokenness to ethnic and racial identity. And it's the same categories. How have we been sinned against? How have we sinned in response? But in our racial and ethnic categories, there's a whole set of dynamics. And the first thing that we did in our book and is said, hey, there's a, there's a part of you that's ethnic and racial, and that's actually something God intended It's part of you being in God's image, just like being a man, just like being a woman, just like other parts of who you are. That's part of you being made in God's image. There's an intention for that. That's really good. But then the second part of that is you've been sinned against and you've sinned in response. And that's broken your racial and ethnic identity. And it's a core part of who you are. And if it's not healed, it's going to fester. It's going to wound you. Just like if you experienced abuse from your dad, your relationships with your dad are going to be distorted. And with male figures are going to be distorted till you get healing. Now start to think corporately. We've had that kind of Being sinned against and sinning happen on a corporate scale, racially and ethnically. And it is broken our identities. We are broken in our ethnic and racial identities. They were intended by God for good, but they've been broken in the ways we've sinned against one another and the ways we've sinned in response to one another. And until that's healed, we walk around broken. We walk around wounded. We walk around operating out of that ethnic and racial identity in ways that continue the violence, that continue the hurt, that continue the brokenness. Racism, as a sin and a demon, a principality in power, has been part of our nation for all of its history. And there are people who have been sinned against and people who have sinned in response. And all that stuff has to be addressed and healed if we're to become the people God intended, if the kingdom is to come on earth as in heaven. So that's what our book is about, is restoring that, healing that. It's a book on healing the soul of who we are as ethnic and racial people. it, we've all we've all agreed that happens when we talk about things like abuse and all the rest, but we don't get it when it comes to how profoundly we've been wounded and broken by our ethnic and racial hatred and sins against each other and all the rest. So that's what we just are so passionate about this because we're walking we're we're the walking wounded in this part of our identity, and until that gets healed. And so then I when I work with these black churches now, when I, Brendan and I work, Brendan and I have led so many prayer meetings ministering to people, white people, African American people, with broken ethnic and racial identities. And when there's healing, you know, I, sometimes we called it the self hatred identity is one identity. Racism causes self hatred, it's a sin against people, and it can cause a self hatred. To watch, like, Brenda, when we've seen a young woman come up to us who's African-American and confesses that's her identity, and she starts to get healed of that. I mean, the angels dance. She starts to have hope and imagination. She starts being healed there. When I, as a white guy, got the, what we call the ignorant white brother prayer, because I don't know nothing about nothing, and I think I do. And when I got that prayer and started getting healed in my white identity... The angels danced, and I could, then Brenda and I could partner. And, and uh, story after story of that kind of healing that starts to make it possible for the kingdom to be, to be on earth as it heaven.
1: So, Rick, I want to ask you in particular, uh, the two white men in this conversation, everything you, everything you said would, would seem to be that it's the ones who have been victimized, the ones who have been harmed, that they're the ones that need to reclaim their ethnic identity, but you included in that white people and majority people. So give me an example, and you can go personal or you can go, you know, from somebody you ministered to, of what is it that the white person needs to have healed? Because I think there's a lot of people going, amen, amen, they need to be healed because there's been this wounding and they understand the context of history and they're owning the uh, the effects of racism. But I, too, am suffering with an inaccurate identity. And that's a cause of my suffering. That's a kind of pain. So unpack that a little bit.
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways to unpack that. I, I think one, one issue is who's more damaged and wounded and broken, their, and broken in their identity, the abuser or the abused? Uh, the abuser is absolutely broken. And often it abuses out of insecurity and all the rest. And in in this way, then, white people have been in the majority uh, and have been ignorant about issues that hurt other people. I mean, that was the first prayer was I had hurt my friends, Ron and Stan, because I just didn't know their world. I didn't know what they'd experienced. I didn't understand well. And I had hurt them unintentionally, but I'd hurt them. And they were praying for me to get a clue and to begin to wake up and to begin. And I know you're not supposed to talk about woke, but I I mean, you got to wake up to some of this stuff. You got to. And and their prayer helped break through to me that my identity was broken because I was living in insensitivity, a lack of awareness. But also, uh, you know, let me just talk about, so that was many years ago, just this last week in talking with the black pastors I'm in partnership with. I made a comment about something we ought to be doing, and we have this level of trust. The, the lead pastor said, man, that's what it is with you white people. You think your way is the right way, and it's not. And, and you got to get over that. and And so that day to this day, there's still this learning process of how, because I'm white, and have been taught by the media, my school, the books I read, the education I had, been taught by a lot of things to believe that my values are the right values until I question that my identity isn't healed. I'm living out of a, of a pride and an arrogance and autonomy. I'm living at, without the possibility of what Brenda talks about, community that will heal me, that will challenge me. So, I, I mean, back, and Brenda and I talk about it in the book, where the healing she had to do, the truth she's had to speak to me. As a white guy, if I don't, I'm a recovering you know, white guy, and I will be all my life because, I, you know, privilege, you get addicted to it. I mean, that, that's just the reality. And I'm gonna learn a new lesson in a week, Dog it.
1: <laughs> well, we we can only see through our eyes until we let others see for us and to tell us what they see. And that that's fundamentally what humility is, right? Being being open to the other and trusting that that Brenda didn't say, I can't talk to you anymore or I'm not gonna be your friend, but that you could receive from her and humbly go, Oh, okay. This is additive instead of diminishing. This is not making me less. I'm becoming more.
3: Yeah, and Brenda would, I mean, she, often it's people who are different than you are who see you in ways you can't see yourself. And so actually, you know, if if Brenda's willing <laughs> for her to say how white people need to be healed... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'll just jump in a little bit and just
2: say that's that's what some of the uniqueness of the book. So people are listening to this and wondering, well, what's what's what 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 do they say about that? So there's a hip white guy identity. I see it a lot. That person who feels like I am so scared that I'm going to be perceived as racist, I'm going to swing the pendulum to the opposite you know, side, and I'm going to become the hip white guy. I'm going to know everything about all things. I'm going to be right out there. And some of that comes out of a deep fear and insecurity of wanting so much to be accepted and so not knowing how to claim one's own identity for themselves. That has to be healed because it's really a facade or the colorblind identity. I don't see race. Everybody, Jesus loves all the little children, red, black, yellow. And and how do you live into that other than saying that you don't see my identity? Because not to see me and to see the beauty of the diversity that comes from the image of God is Problematic. That is not the world in which we live. And it's not a helpful thing to tell somebody, I don't see you. You should. Yeah. And that that's that's a that's that's a bent. We call it being bent. That's a bentness. And so worship is when we are bent towards something else, but we come in God's presence and we straighten up and we kind of go, God did not make me to be rage filled. I am not going to be an angry person because of what's happening around me. I'm going to find a way to be healed of that so that I don't have to let the I'm going to step into forgiveness because I'm not going to let the racist people around me cause me to hate. God will heal my heart and cause me to live in freedom from that. I do it for myself, not for you. And so all of that is the way that we step into the realities of who God created us to be. Back to the act of worship. I'll tell you this, and I'm hoping the people listening will hear this. The greatest act of worship is to become who God said you are. That's when you're worshiping God.
1: Mm-hmm. And and evil would have us dial that down or to become something more than we are. And then we, we get to the end of our life and we've not become ourself.
2: That's exactly right. I'm so glad you named evil. So can I just throw that out to say, this is Rick. And so for people listening, I'm the one who's Pentecostal. So I came from a Pentecostal background. Rick is the Episcopalian. So you've got a a charismatic Episcopalian and a Pentecostal woman writing this book. But it was our spirituality that brought us together. And we, in both of our traditions, were able to name that we wrestle not against flesh and blood alone. We wrestle against powers and principalities. So the spirit of empire taking over and ruling over others, the spirit of mammon where money justifies every, if anything, as long as we succeed and we prosper from it. Not true. That's not the truth. The spirit of fear, The Bible says God has not given us the spirit of fear, and I see the spirit of fear rampant in the church right now, so afraid that someone's going to take away something from us, so much so that good Christians are doing things that I never thought I'd see us do, ever. But the spirit of fear must be named, and we've got to decide, am I going to worship the spirit of fear, or am I going to worship the living God? Feel like preaching, brother, so go ahead and take it
1: you've got to preach about this it's just it's too important right if we if we were to identify people dangling over hell on a thread we would we would have however we interpret that dangling over hell on a thread we would have great passion and zeal for it and and this really is a kind of dangling over hell the hell of allowing uh, the demonic to determine what's right and true and good and beautiful the Uh, demonic, determining where we find our security and what will make us safe as individuals, what will bring refuge to our soul. And so as I'm having this conversation, it just seems more and more real to me. Again, this is not peripheral. It's absolutely core to not just the heart of God, but to the very nature of God. And um, I guess my final question is, where do you see the Spirit at work? Um, Because I see what's happening as divisive on the surface, but for those that have eyes to see, and for me, I'm sitting in counseling rooms with with pastors and, and Christian leaders for extended periods of time, and when for whatever reason they begin to have to deal with their brokenness, some of their ideology, theology, politics, worldview begins to change when they get in touch with their own pain and their own fears. So I kind of see a wave that's that's spreading around the world. That's really a, a kingdom kind of wave. But can each of you share some stories or some encouragement about in the midst of the news and the headlines and another black man being shot, you know, day after day and week after week, um, Where where is... Give paint a picture of hope what you're seeing.
3: Start there and and then uh I'm sure Brenda could talk all day, uh, but but uh, one of the things we both said in the book was that uh, the hope is the next generation. Uh, the folks growing up in a multiracial society and who who kind of look at that, experience it, have relationships, it's been normalized for them that that's, that's the world as it is and that's the world we're all going to need to learn to live in and lead in and partner in and, and all the rest. And so... And that level of emerging adults, uh, I see so much uh, hope. And then I also see (laughs) some cause for concern uh, because of the intergenerational conflict (laughs) that emerges as young adults have a different path. And uh so in my church for instance we uh we have a group of young adults and we talk about racial issues differently than than we did 20 years ago or 10 years ago. We have speakers who come in who uh, are multiracial. Our worship uh, is moving in that multiracial di- uh direction. Uh and that's just normalized. That's that's the the reality of what what uh what these folks are growing up in. I've also been doing a major research project on uh on young adults and I've talked to a, uh, actually young adults from every different racial background. I've done about 32 focus groups. And I've just been listening to them talk about what makes them alive in Christ. And it's it's fascinating. Their vision for church, uh, the, the problem a lot of the young adults are having right now is their older, more traditional, so take the African-American uh, focus groups we've done, their older African-American churches uh, are dealing with uh, gender issues, sexuality issues in ways that are alienating them. Uh, they're they're not comfortable with the culture that they're being asked to live into, and and, and so but then they look at predominantly white churches that maybe have a l- little bit of consciousness and a little bit of uh, uh, multi ethnic kind of uh, emphasis, and they go there and their racial identity isn't understood, and so they, they get alienated there. And we actually have a whole generation of young people who want to live into this new reality, and we need God to raise up from among them leaders. And so the church planting movement is very uh, intriguing and very helpful to think about uh churches led by 30 somethings uh, is very it's ama- I can tell you about church after church at that age level where it's a new reality and a new church Brenda's church is like that it's an amazing church and that young adult group loves what they're doing at their church Quest Church and uh in, in Seattle and so that I, I see a whole younger generation of churches being raised up but the pain is that there's right now an in intergenerational level of conflict and tension and And if you will, no home for young adults. It's starting to happen, but young adults don't have any place to call home because this is normal for them, and it's not normal in their churches. And it's racial issues, ethnic issues, gender issues, sexual issues, all that kind of stuff. And and there, I'm not uh, wading in. I'm not commenting on uh, orientation. Yeah, that's an issue, but that's not the main thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about things like how pastors teach how men and women relate to each other, and. what the kind of relations are, and whether women can use their gifts in ministry. Like, that's a huge question that intergenerationally is causing a tremendous amount of conflict and tension and a sense of not finding home. So I I can tell you lots of stories of young adults. But I, I, you know, like Brenda, I can't help but tell the truth. (laughs) That's also causing a great deal of intergenerational tension. In a sense, young people are having trouble finding their home.
2: Agreed. I I would also echo that I see energy and hope rising up from young people who basically have become disenchanted, but also um, committed to trying to do something different. And so I appreciate their energy um, and their willingness. And so almost, if I understand this to be accurate, almost every major revival that's ever happened was led by young adults, college age people. And so their, their zeal for change is indeed mobilizing difference. But I, as I sat and listened to Rick, something came to my heart that I think I'm supposed to say. And I think it's women, women leaders. I think there's something happening with women. And I thank God as I sat and listened and wanted to end with this, you know, the Liberian turnover of, of a dictator, Charles Taylor was done because of a group of women cross, cross different backgrounds, ethnically different, some women, Christians, other Muslims, but as mothers and as women who were tired of children being taken as child's soldiers. They decided that they were going to pray the devil back to hell. That's the name of the documentary, Pray the Devil Back to Hell. And we in the United States, it's time for us to look at what we've been seeing in, in in real time on television, in the ways that we see people holding Jesus saves flags in the midst of abject violence and chaos, and assume that that is a representation of the kingdom, we've got to pray the devil back to hell. And it was women who were at the front of that, who were not Um, I think driven by the same power dynamics that our brothers may be. I think there's a communal something that women lead out of, and it's been documented. If a woman in a country gets a grant That grant helps the community, not just her. So Lord God, I pray that you would raise up women all over this country and around the world who have a willingness to stand for the truth of the kingdom of God, that we might lead the way in saving a generation of young people who are being caught in the crossfires of the church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.